0: can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation in chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, uh, that's just all the way toward all the way at the end, and you can find chapter 5 there. And if you're new to exploring who Jesus is and you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a seat nearby, and you can use that in this service, and feel free to take that home with you if you don't own a Bible. Well, we are continuing our global mission series. So, we're taking three weeks to focus on God's global mission through the local church. So, local mission and global mission are both important. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors and to love the nations, the neighbors who are across the seas and around the globe. He calls us to make disciples right where we are locally, and He sends us into the world to go to the nations to make disciples globally. So, we don't have to pick one. God cares about both, and so we are called to care about both, local mission and global mission. And so, I often draw attention to our God's call to our mission locally here among our neighbors, and so we're taking three weeks to think more intentionally about our global mission, which has historically been called missions. So, that's what the S at the end of miss, missions has historically referred to. It's referring to the global mission of the church. So, when you hear the word missions, that's what we're typically referring to. And so, just a clarification in the midst of this series, um, I'm not saying in focusing on our global mission that every one of us needs to go, nor am I saying that this is only relevant to those who might be called to go, uh, either short-term or long-term. Instead, the point is that we should all care about this We saw last week that this is God's heartbeat. This is His plan from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. He is rescuing people from all nations for the praise of His name and for their own good and their own joy. And as people are caught up into this story and follow Jesus, He calls us to be a part of taking the gospel to the nations. So that can include praying. It can include supporting people that we hear going to the mission field. It can include learning and just learning about the places where the gospel has not yet gone or the conditions in other nations and people groups. It can involve sending people well and honorably, making sure all their needs are cared for. It can look like encouraging people as they're on the field, writing uh, them and continuing to pray for them. And if it includes learning, I'd encourage you to grab a book about the global mission of the church. There's a couple on the center table in our resource corner out there for you to consider, and I'll have more practical steps to consider next week. But I just want to have that in mind in the middle of this series, so we're thinking this is about um, God giving us His heart, helping us to share in His heart for the nations, and then considering all the creative ways in which we can use our lives for the advancement of the gospel near and far. And so, in this series on global mission or missions, we're drawing attention in particular on God, the triune God. So, specifically, we're seeing how the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, relate to global mission. So, last Sunday, if you were with us, we focused on the Father's plan for all peoples, people from every people group, to praise His name. From beginning to end, God's plan is to bless all people groups all nations. And that that theme is threaded through the whole tapestry of Scripture. And so now this Sunday, we're moving from the Father to the Son, and we're focusing on the work of the Son, and in particular, the work of the Son in purchasing these people from among every people group to be rescued by His grace. So last week we saw that the Father planned to rescue people from every people group And this morning we're looking at the Son's work in purchasing these people from all nations. And we see this in Revelation chapter 5. So before we read this, if, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, if you've spent any time in it, you might be intimidated by it or you might be fascinated by it. And it's helpful to remember that the book of Revelation is a symbolic vision of reality from God's perspective. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's written not to confuse us, but actually to encourage us. So, this was written to first century Christians who were persecuted for being Christians. And this is, intent, this is written with the intent to encourage them to keep going, encouraging them to hold fast, to keep trusting in Christ. And it does this by giving a symbolic vision of reality. Kind of pulling the curtain back to give us heaven's perspective, God's perspective on reality, both now and the future, to help us interpret life from God's perspective so that we can have the fortitude to keep going. And so, it does this by drawing attention to Jesus in particular. So, let's read Revelation chapter 5 together. You can follow along as I read. Then I saw… In the right hand of Him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, this is John speaking, (coughs) as though it had been slain, or as slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you And glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are gathered here to hear from your word. And we thank you that your Son was slain for us. And we thank you that your Spirit was sent. To bring us to faith and give us new hearts. And so we pray now that you would humble us and encourage us, convict us, and strengthen us from your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just walk through this chapter. And as we move through this vision, we'll be seeing the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, in global missions. So, first, we see Jesus. As the lion who rules over all of history. So we see at the beginning of this chapter this vision of God the Father on the throne with a scroll in his hand. So remember, this is a symbolic vision. God is not literally sitting and holding a scroll, this is a symbolic vision of reality. So, what does this scroll represent? Well, we find out in the coming chapters of Revelation, it seems like the scroll and its seals represent the unfolding of God's plan of judgment and salvation in history from that point forward. It's like the plans for a military campaign, God's plan to destroy everything that's destroying this good good world, and then to set all things right. It's His plan to rescue His people. It's the unfolding of history… And it carries it forward to its consummation. So that's the scroll and its seals. So what's the problem here? Well, an angel proclaims in verse 2, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who's worthy to look into this plan and see this unrolled and unfolded in history? No one is able. No one on earth or anywhere is worthy to open the scroll. And because of this, John begins to cry. He's in distress. He sees this is a massive problem because if the scroll isn't opened, then the plan for history here will not unfold. History would keep going as it has been with all the craziness of the world that we see. I mean, doesn't it look like the world is just unhinged sometimes? And John looks around and he sees evil and suffering and he sees this scroll and he sees nobody worthy to open this scroll because everyone, every single person, throughout human history is part of the problem everyone has participated in the problem of human history so the scroll will unfold god's judgment and everyone deserves to be judged no one's worthy but then the, one of the elders says something to john so there's 24 elders around the throne here probably representing the people of god throughout human history the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of israel 12 apostles and so one of these elders says something to john as john's weeping in despair Verse 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this elder says there is one throughout all of human history, there is one who is worthy, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's conquered. So he's drawing on Israel's scriptures here the Old Testament, almost every verse in Revelation, if you scratch it, you will um, find the Old Testament underneath. So, all the story of the Bible, all through it, God unfolded the promise of a king who would come to rule. And all the way back in Genesis, this was referred to with imagery of a lion from Judah's tribe. So, Judah was one of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this imagery comes up at the end of the book of Genesis. So, here's the theme. You have Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis, the grandson of Abraham. And he's about to die. And he has 12 sons that will later become the leaders of the the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, when he gets to Judah, listen to what he says. He's blessing one son after another. So, here's what he says to Judah in Genesis 49, verse 9 Judah is a lion's cub. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, the ruling scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, Judah It's called a lion here, a strong and mighty ruler-like animal, and it says the ruler's staff will not depart from him, his line, and his line then would be the line of kingship and rulership. And then Jacob says that the obedience of the peoples will be his. And that word peoples just doesn't refer to many individual people. It's a term that refers to people groups. So Judah's line will have a king and nations will come. People from every nation will come and submit to him rule, his rule. And so, this elder also tells John that this lion of the tribe of Judah is also called the root of David. So, David was Israel's great king that came from Judah's tribe, but David failed, and so the prophets later, and in particular the prophet Isaiah, promised still one who was to come in Judah's line, in David's line. And Isaiah said this greater king would be called the root of David's line. So, the elder comforts John with this. He says, John, stop crying. You don't need to weep anymore. There's one who's worthy, the long-awaited king, the one who was promised from the beginning, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, the one who will rule all things, the one to whom tribute will come and obedience will come from all nations. This one has come, and he has conquered, and he's worthy So, Jesus is the one who holds history in His hands. He's the one who can open the scroll, which means as an encouragement to God's people, the purpose for which this book was written is that we don't need to fear history. We know that history will unfold according to God's plan. We know the outcome. Being on the side of Jesus is ultimately what it means to be on the right side of history. So, He is sovereign over history. And this gives us confidence for global mission because we know that Jesus made promises that He will fulfill. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, I will build my church and it will not die out. He said, the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. So, Jesus The lion, the ruler of history, will fulfill his promises. So we have great confidence. But there's a surprise here. He's not just the lion who rules over history, he's also the lamb who ransomed people or purchased people from all nations. So John is told, Behold, the lion has conquered. And so he looks. But what does he see? He doesn't see a strong lion. I imagine that's what he was expecting. The elder says, Behold the lion! So he looks, and he sees a slain lamb. Verse 6, you can read it with me. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, or as slain. So John expects to see a lion who's been conquered, but he sees a lamb who was slain. And this lamb, however, he's standing. So he's alive. He's alive. So, remember, this is a symbol-laden vision. So, what does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus has conquered through His death. He's conquered, but He did it by being slaughtered. He's brought victory, but He's done it through defeat. And so, He stands again having defeated death. So, here's a symbol-laden picture of the gospel, the good news at the heart of the Bible Here's the gospel story according to the vision. Jesus came like a lion-like king from Judah and David's line, and we saw His authority when He was on earth. He casts out demons. He has authority to heal people from diseases. He calms a storm with a word. He pardons enemies. He rolls back sickness. He's raising people from the dead. And then this strong and mighty warrior king went to the cross and was it seemed, defeated by the powers of this age. And yet, as he's killed and overcome and defeated, and as he was conquered, he actually conquered. And so, John sees this lamb who was slain standing. He's risen. He's alive. And he is the one who's conquered. He's conquered through his death. His death was a sacrifice. He rescued people From eternal death, like a lamb slain as a sacrifice on behalf of people, taking their death for them so that they can live. He's purchased their salvation and forgiveness. And now, this lamb who was slain, who's standing, has sent out his spirit into the world. That's what the rest of verse 6 refers to. This lamb has seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So, the heaven, the seven horns represent the fullness of power. So, horns represented power. Seven is a number of fullness throughout Revelation. So, He has the fullness of power, even though He's this slain Lamb. And He has the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out in the world, which is the fullness of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit sent out into the world. And so, this is the story of Jesus, His faithful life, His sacrificial death like a lamb, his victorious resurrection, and now he stands sending his spirit out into the world. But why did he die? Why was he a lamb? We hear the reason in a song that breaks out at this point. The slain lamb walks up to the throne and he takes the scroll. And then the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before him. And they start singing. And so, verses 9 to 10 are the heart and center of this chapter. And it says this, they sang a new song, saying, "'Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for,' so here's the reason, "'for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe.'" And language and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So, this teaches us about Jesus' intention through the cross. What was on Jesus' mind as he went to the cross? What was his intent? Notice two things here. First, Jesus purchased people from every people group on the planet, his death was the payment of a ransom. So, a ransom is payment given so that someone can go free. So, Jesus' death was the payment, a ransom payment, so that those whom He died for might go free, they might be liberated. And so, the cross tells us that we all need to be ransomed. We all have a debt that we owe, and only Jesus could pay it through His death. And He died the death we deserve so that we could go free. And who did He purchase? Who did He ransom? Who is he giving that payment for? By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It says it four different ways so we can't miss it. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. So this is why global mission matters. We go to the nations because Jesus died for the nations. The Great Commission is not just make disciples. It's make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus calls His church to do. So, I mentioned last time that there are many of these tribes and languages and peoples that John mentions here. There's many of them who do not yet know about Jesus, still 2,000 years into the mission of the church. Many have not heard Jesus yet. So, some estimate that there are perhaps something like 16,000 or so people groups, groups of people with their own unique culture, Um, and or language. And so, of those 16,000, over 6,000 or so have not been reached. They don't have a witnessing church among them. So, it's hard to know exactly how to define people group. What are these tongues, tribes, nations, and languages? Um, But uh, by reasonable estimates, there's 16,000 of them, and 6,000 have yet to have a witnessing church among them. And there are other nations like much of Canada and Europe, which are now largely post-Christian. So, they, they at one time did have a vibrant witnessing church among them, and now very few people are Christians. And so, this leads us to the second thing we learn about Jesus' intention at the cross. He not only ransoms people from every people group, but He restores people to what they were always meant to be. Jesus came to restore our humanity. He, he came to restore our greater purpose and purposes for living. This is in verse 10. Is this a striking way to refer to what Jesus did? You have made them a kingdom, priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. I wish we had more time to think about what this sentence means, but here it is in short. From the very beginning, humanity people from every tribe, tongue, nation, humanity from the beginning was created to worship God as priests in all of life with every thought and in every moment and to serve God as rulers and to serve the world as rulers. So, when God first created Adam and Eve, He commissioned them to rule and have dominion. He made them like a king and a queen over creation. Humanity was to rule faithfully, reflecting God's faithful rule over the world. And He made them to be His priests. He set Adam at rest in the garden to worship God, to obey God, to serve God in the world, to enjoy God's presence, and then to serve Him in the world. And so, we've all fallen away from this purpose of being rulers and being worshiping priests in all of life. All nations have failed in this purpose. Everyone from every nation has failed in this purpose. We don't rule the world as His faithful stewards, We don't worship God as faithful priests, but Jesus died not just to forgive us for our failure, but to restore us to this calling, restore it right now in everyday life and forever in a new creation to come. So, these images of reigning and being priests may not seem to resonate with us much today, right? They seem kind of foreign, don't they? Unless you've been marinating in the Bible. But these are actually incredibly relevant to our lives. These are the images that God Himself, in His story, has given us so that we might understand who we are, that our our identity can be shaped by these images of ruling and serving as kings and queens and priests, as rulers and priests, in all of life. Every part of life has significance. Every moment of life has significance. Every thought in our mind has significance because God has made us for these noble purposes to live in his presence, reflecting his rule and honoring Him as we serve Him and others in the world. So, the message that we bring people, the message that Jesus sends His church into the world to proclaim, is that people can recover the deepest purpose of their existence. They can know God in every moment of life and worship Him with this sense of noble purpose. So, finally then, Jesus... He's the lion who rules over history. He's the lamb who ransomed people from every people group. And finally, Jesus is the one who's worthy of His reward. So the singing continues in verses 11 to 14. But now, thousands upon thousands of angels are joining the chorus, and every creature in the universe is joining the chorus. And what are they singing? They're singing a song of praise and worship, and they're singing it to Jesus and to the Father. This is one of the clear places in the New Testament that shows that Jesus is divine. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, and He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of the worship that no one else is worthy of other than God alone. So, listen to what they say to Jesus in particular in verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And then verse 13, both to the one who sits on the throne, the Father, and the Son. To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. So, they're singing worship to God the Father and God the Son, and this is saying that Jesus is is worthy of the reward of his suffering. He's worthy of receiving worship, right? If he has ransomed people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation, this song at the end is saying he is worthy to receive that worship. He is worthy to have the people that he's ransomed from across the globe praise him and honor him. So this is a deep motivation for a global mission. Here's how. There was a German missionary in the 1700s named Nicholas von Zinzendorf, and he was part of the beginning of a church movement called the Moravians, and this church movement became a missions movement, and they constantly prayed for the nations together, and over the course of the 1700s, they had sent over 300 missionaries to the nations and to unreached peoples, and there's, the sto- there's a story of the first two or two of the first missionaries that they had sent out. Two of the younger missionaries were sent out to the West Indies, and they didn't know if they'd ever return. A lot of the missionaries they first sent out didn't return. They ended up dying in the course of their mission and dying in the early years. But as they sailed away, so just picture the scene, this group of Christians who've been praying for the nations, and they send out these two young people. And as they're sent away and the ship's going out, these two young people lift their hands and they shout back to shore and they yell out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. They were meditating on Romans 5 or Revelation 5, probably Romans 5 too. And so, this then became the theme of this missions movement. They knew that the Lamb had been slain for people from among every people group, and they knew that the Lamb was worthy of the reward of His suffering. And so, that motivation of those missionaries is part of our heritage today. So, as we wrap up, I want to share just three additional motivations for global missions. And each of these come from seeing some kind of unexpected combination in this text. They come from holding two things together that we might not expect to put together at first. But when we see that they belong together, when we bring them together, it creates a powerful motivational dynamic for global mission, for our prayers and our giving and our sending and our going and our encouraging the people in missions. So first... The gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. So it's inclusive in that it's for everyone. Everyone is called to believe. Everyone is invited to come to Christ. And the gospel is for all nations. So every people group, every ethnicity, there's no racial prejudice in the heart of the Lamb. And the gospel should actually abolish any racial precedent, prejudice in the hearts of God's people. The gospel is for those in America and those in Yemen. It's for those in China. It's for those in Brazil. It's for those who speak German. It's for those who speak Amharic. It's for those who speak any language and live anywhere. It's for men and women. It's for young and old. It's for rich and poor. It's for those in the first world and the third world. The gospel is incredibly inclusive And this is why it's been able to enter into so many cultures and transform them from the inside out. Not referring to certain cultures, and Americans have been guilty of this, of taking the gospel along with American cultural baggage and planting that into a culture. That's not with how it's supposed to work. The gospel itself, this message, is to enter into a people group and take root so the Spirit can transform them from the inside out. The gospel is incredibly inclusive, but the gospel is also exclusive because Jesus, we see in this text, is the only hope for the nations. He's the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. He's the only one who can pay the ransom. For people, Jesus himself said in John fourteen, six, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's why the Apostle Peter, when Jesus was resurrected and Jesus and Peter's preaching to people, he said there's no other name under heaven by which people must be saved. So the gospel is radically exclusive as well. And and we think of these first Christians, we might think like we would today, is it arrogant to claim Uh, That you you know the only way? Is it arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way and there's no other ways? I think if you would have asked Peter, who had experienced the risen Christ and seen the resurrection, he he would say, it absolutely is arrogant, unless it's true, right? Otherwise, it's actually arrogant to deny the truth to people. It's actually unloving to withhold the medication that someone needs when it's the only thing you know that can rescue them. And so, the the early Christian movement was a movement of humility, of acknowledging, we, we aren't making this up, we're receiving this, and we're just passing on the message to others. So, the gospel is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. Now, it's both at the same time, so it's bringing them together that the gospel gets its power. So, think about it this way, Christianity makes an exclusive claim, Jesus is the only way but it has an inclusive call, Everyone's welcome to get in on this. And it's this combination that made it such a powerful force in the first century and still today. So, the Roman religions of the first century were inclusive at both points, both their claim and their call. So, it's doubly inclusive. So, they would have tolerated anything that was doubly inclusive as well. So, they said, all religions are fine, right? That's an inclusive claim, They also had an inclusive call, and anyone can get in on anything, right? So doubly inclusive. And the Romans would have tolerated Christianity if it was inclusive like they were. And they would have actually tolerated Christianity if they were actually doubly exclusive, if they had an exclusive claim and an exclusive call, because they tolerated the Jewish people in the first century who had that. The Jews had an exclusive claim, there's one God, Yahweh and an exclusive call. You've got to become Jewish. And the Romans tolerated them because they weren't really a threat to society. They kept to themselves. They, they weren't saying, everyone everywhere needs to get in on this. They weren't going forth with an inclusive call. But the powerful dynamic of Jesus' message is that it had a radically exclusive claim. There's no name under heaven by which man must be saved. But then a radically inclusive call. They said, and anyone can get in on this. And they went all over the place to share this message. It's for all classes of people, all nations, and that's what made Christianity a threat to society in some people's minds. So, it had this exclusive claim, and they're inviting everyone to get in on it. This is what it made it such a powerful force in the early century. So, we're tempted in our culture to make Christianity, if we're going to go one way or the other, we're tempted to make it more like the Roman religions, We're tempted to say Christianity welcomes everyone, and there are no exclusive claims. There's no exclusive things to believe. There's no exclusive ethics to practice. But we need to see that when we do that, we're not only denying what Christianity really is and who Jesus really is and what what His call is, we're actually removing its cultural power. But when we keep these together, then we feel the urgency and the joy of spreading His message to the nations because we believe that, Jesus gives us the message that everyone needs to hear, and that it's for them. And He welcomes them with His heart. Second, second combination. We see a combination of God's sovereignty and human responsibility here. So, we see God's sovereignty in this text. God holds the unfolding of history in His hands. And when Jesus died on the cross, He purchased salvation for all who would trust Him. So, global mission is guaranteed to succeed. Do you see that? Verse 9 says that Jesus ransomed people. He accomplished it. He ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people. So, He didn't just die for potential salvation to be offered, He actually accomplished it. He ransomed people for God. He accomplished their salvation, and He did that for people from among every people group. So this is a definite atonement. He actually ransomed specific people for God from all people groups, which means that every people group will end up having people around the throne, which means that the church has incredible hope, and they did from the first century onward when people… We were in the complete darkness around the globe. They knew Jesus has purchased them and he will bring them in. And Revelation 7 pictures them all around the throne from every people group praising God's name. And so we have God's sovereignty here, but we also have responsibility because people will not be saved unless they actually hear the gospel and turn to Christ. We have a responsibility to go and to bring the gospel to them. So, Romans 10.14 says this, how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or telling? So, here's the encouragement of holding these two realities together. God's sovereignty doesn't mean we don't go. It means that we can go with confidence. God's sovereignty doesn't negate our missional efforts. It guarantees the ultimate success of them. Because Jesus has already purchased the salvation of people. It's a done deal. And so God will use our efforts to bring them to Himself. So when we go to the hard places, when we pray for the gospel to reach hard places, when we send people to hard places, we know that the mission will eventually be successful. Maybe not in our lifetime, maybe not in our generation, but eventually people from every people group will be around the throne. So it's our great privilege then to participate with God in this mission. Finally, Jesus is both a lion and a lamb. He's a powerful lion, and He's a tender lamb. He's a sacrificial lamb who's also powerful like a lion. He's both, not one or the other. Very often, We can tend to view Him as one or the other. And I think many people reject Christianity because they've heard a message of Jesus that really only emphasized one or the other. But when we bring both of them together, there's real uh, power and we see the full true Jesus. So think about this with me. If we just view Jesus as a lion, then we're not drawn to Him in love. We may revere Him, but our heart won't find rest in Him. We may want to obey Him in some measure, but we won't want to just love Him and enjoy Him. We may fear Him, but we will not find Him as a true friend. On the other hand, if we just view Jesus as a lamb, we're not awed by Him. We may see Him as a sacrifice, but we're not compelled to come to Him. We may see His gentleness but we might interpret that as incompetence. So, if you're considering Christ, then this is how you become a Christian. You take all of Jesus. You take Him as a lamb, and you give yourself to Him um, as He's a lion, and we all do this moment by moment in our lives. So, we bring both of these together, and as we bring both of these together, worship's kindled. We see him as a king who rules over history. We see him as a gentle lamb who lays down his life for him. Isn't this what is motivating these songs in Revelation 5? They see Jesus as the one who is worthy, the lion, God himself, God the Son. And they see him as the lamb who has been conquered and, in being conquered, conquered. So then let's sing together about this as well. Let's join the chorus. So, invite the musicians up to lead in a song, and let's pray before we do that. Our Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus, and we thank You for purchasing our salvation through Him. We thank You that the Spirit was sent to change our hearts, that we might see the beauty of of Your Son as a Lion and Lamb. And we pray that You would even now, by Your Spirit, cultivate true worship in our hearts, that we might sing to You and join this chorus with hearts filled with thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. And, uh,